You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. All right. Hi, everyone. For those of you who are new, I'm Jen's wife. I am so happy to be here. This church is an amazing community. I'm learning so much from Aaron and from Bob and from all of you. And I'm grateful when I can come here and share a talk with you. Um, So I'm going to read the passage for Palm Sunday. This passage is being read all over churches in America and in the world today. And it is found in Luke chapter 19 verses, my little, 28 through 44. After he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethpage and Bethany at the place called Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter into it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those, of, those who were sent departed and found it. And as he told them, as they were untying the colt, its owners asked, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus. And after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all their deeds of power they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. As he came near and saw the city, Jesus wept over it, saying, if you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Welcome to a talk on Jesus and biblical masculinity. One of the biggest, most compelling campaigns in the evangelical church is biblical masculinity and femininity. The phrase biblical masculinity and femininity refers to what conservative Christians understand as the unquestionable, non-negotiable gender roles and functions for all of humanity. In biblical masculinity, men are designed by God to protect, provide, and preside or lead over their families or, and women in their lives. And women, in turn, are designed to complement, support, and sustain and help our husbands or the men in our lives. 
that includes our sons, fathers, pastors, and our male neighbors. They lead, we follow. These very specific non-negotiable gender roles are mostly derived from Paul's writing. You might remember the passage in Ephesians 5 where Paul tells men to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. When it comes to women, Paul has a less romantic command. He tells women to cover their heads, to not speak in church, and that their role is to submit their lives to their husbands. We have heard a lot about biblical manhood and womanhood throughout our lives and through, through books in the Christian church like Love and Respect and Wild at Heart. But if you really look at the life and ministry of Jesus, especially as he makes his way towards Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the gospel writers tell a completely different story. In her book, God is a Black Woman, author Christina Cleveland unpacks how patriarchal gender roles influence our understanding of God. In our Christian American culture, we believe that God loves us and approves of us if we can overcome our needs. Biblical masculinity, in turn, is about overcoming our needs in order to be of service to other people. People in need are a burden to society. Godly men are not a burden to society. Only those who need nothing, who are utterly self-sufficient, are worthy of respect, emulation, adoration, and success. The epitome of patriarchy, therefore, is colonization. In colonization, we conquer vulnerable communities for their benefit. It's a form of benevolent patriarchy, and colonizers do this in order to project their ideas, their culture, their way of life onto other people. This is why a lot of conservative people struggle with Putin, because on some level they believe that it is justifiable to invade another country. This is what real men do. Real men conquer their enemies and extinguish their needs. Now, I want to state at the outset that this concept of biblical masculinity and femininity is not inherently immoral. I do think colonization is immoral, but, this kind, but on an interpersonal level, I don't think biblical masculinity and gender roles are immoral. Okay. I think it's very important in our recovery and in our reconstruction to draw hard lines where things are hurtful and harmful, but to not draw hard lines where none are necessary. There's nothing shameful or toxic about wanting to lead your wife. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to be a woman who submits to your spouse. I get it. I love it. There should be no social weirdness around that. I don't want to trash this theology for people who find it life-giving. There is a lot about Pauline masculinity that is appealing. For a long time in my own evangelical journey, I gravitated towards biblical masculinity and femininity. Even after I came out as a lesbian, I loved this stuff. I read all the books, listened to all the podcasts. I love women's ministry events. I found a lot of safety and comfort in this kind of certainty, in having my purpose and function 
outlined for me. And honestly, being submissive makes all my relationships much easier. And prioritizing the home, as silly as it sounds, makes my house and home really cozy. But as I got older, I realized that my submissiveness, although it made me really likable, it really only supported the people that should not be in charge or in leadership. The more I kept silence about really important things, the more I conformed myself into what other people wanted. And ultimately, it made me really unhappy. And so if you find traditional roles life-giving for you, all I want to do today is to simply help you understand that there are other ways of looking at this and that the it, traditional gender roles are not the only way of looking at gender and sexuality and that biblical masculinity has nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth is the opposite of a patriarch and he is the antithesis of biblical manhood. Even though biblical manhood and womanhood isn't necessarily morally wrong, what is morally wrong is when we tell people that you have no other choice but to fulfill these roles. But this is hard to reject because the term is biblical, right? Biblical manhood and womanhood. Calling anything biblical is dangerous. The term biblical implies that all the books in the Bible have one theology and one voice. This is simply just not true, okay? Paul has a very different understanding of salvation than James does. The Jesus of Matthew is very different than the Jesus in John. And so instead of using the term biblical, I want to encourage you to use terms like Pauline or Matthean or Lucan. And if you don't know the sexy way to say a Bible author's name, just say who the author is, because that is who is telling this story. The Bible is not a person. It's a collection of stories, poems, sacred stories, poems, and prophecies written by 66 plus different people. It's not one voice, 66 plus voices. And we have to acknowledge that. So when we talk about biblical masculinity, we need to be very clear that we're talking about Pauline masculinity and John Piper's understanding of masculinity. Jesus says nothing about gender roles in any of the four gospels. There is no such thing as headship and submission in the gospels. Jesus never says anything that even implies that your gender at birth dictates your function, your non-negotiable purpose and function as an adult. You see, in patriarchal systems, men are designed and commissioned by God to protect, provide, and preside or lead over their families, whether they want to or not. Because this is what Jesus did, right? Jesus protected God's people. Jesus provided financially for God's people. And Jesus led God's people into political and economic freedom. Correct? No. Jesus did not protect anyone. For crying out loud, he allowed himself to be crucified. Okay? What Jesus did call out was toxic theology and helped people deconstruct. Remember, he often said, you have heard it said, but I say this. He didn't protect anyone from being killed or persecuted. 
John the Baptist, the forerunner of the gospel, his head was on a plate. I'm not saying Jesus didn't care or that God doesn't care about our protection. I'm simply trying to illustrate how antithetical biblical masculinity is to the person and work of Christ. Did Jesus provide financially for anyone? Matthew 8.20 says, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was homeless. He traveled all over Palestine for three years, proclaiming the good news about God's upside-down kingdom. He didn't even encourage people to build wealth. He said, no one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. Jesus even had parables warning people about building more barns to store their wealth. Jesus said, you fool, this very night, your life is being demanded of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves and are not rich toward God. Conforming your personality, your dreams, your ambitions, and conforming your needs to what Paul the Apostle wrote 2,000 years ago and to what John Piper and men like him think does nothing for the glory of our creator. It only hurts us. There's no better passage for deconstructing biblical masculinity than Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday, before Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he tells a story about an awful king, an awful nobleman. This king in the parable of the 10 pounds is basically a colonizer. And Jesus provides no judgment on that. He simply states that this nobleman went to a distant country to get royal power for himself and then return. Before he left, he commissioned slaves to invest one pound, which in those days was very, very little. He commissioned these slaves to invest one pound into some kind of work, into some kind of investment to give him the profits in return. When the nobleman returned, he summoned his slaves and asked, and asked what did they do with his money? What did you do with my money? The first person said that with his one pound, he earned 10 more pounds in investments. The nobleman rewarded him with the very thing every colonizer wants, royal power. He said, you have been trustworthy in a very small thing. Take charge of 10 cities. Now, instead of seeing this parable as patriarchy 101 or as a transference of like toxic masculine values, we are often taught this parable, or, or, we are often taught this parable around giving campaigns in churches. See what we can do with your money? We can invest it. We can get back tenfold for the kingdom. The same kind of reward system happened when the second person came forth, but not the third person. The third person did not conform. And they said, Lord, here is your pound. I wrapped it in a piece of cloth. 
for I was afraid of you because you are a harsh man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you do not sow, as colonizers tend to do. Here's a vulnerable person advocating for justice, for what is fair. And what did the king do? He took his money, arrested him, and commanded his slaves to, and I quote, bring him here and slaughter him in my presence. What is this moral lesson of this parable about? In Luke's gospel, Jesus offers no explanation. He simply ends the parable and makes his way into Jerusalem. But when you compare the parable of the colonizer with what happens next, we can see why Luke placed these two events together. Luke wrote that immediately after sharing this parable, Jesus made his way to Jerusalem. On his way by foot to Jerusalem, Jesus sent his disciples to go and find a colt, a donkey. He asked them to untie the donkey and to bring it to him. And when someone asked why they are untying it, Jesus told them to say, the Lord has need of it. Don't overlook that statement. Here is the God of the universe, the exact representation of our creator expressing a need. Jesus had a need. Remember, Jesus didn't own animals. He didn't own a horse. He needed a colt, a donkey. Now, did Jesus go in triumphantly on a war horse? Did he bring with him captives? Were there men blowing trumpets declaring his majestic and awesome name? Jesus is the opposite of the patriarch. The text says he rode along as people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. And the people along the road said the same words of praise the humble shepherds heard from the angels at his nativity. Glory in the highest heaven. Jesus did not come to slay his enemies or to reap what he did not sow. Jesus did not come to capitalize on vulnerabilities. He came on a borrowed donkey and wept. The text says that after a moment of praise, Jesus wept. The Greek word for wept is not describing a sniffle. You see, when I cry, I kind of like ugly tremble, you know, kind of thing. But um, this word for wept is kleio, meaning the typical weeping of bereft women. This kind of weeping is a shameful kind of weeping. It's the kind of emotional pain that is so overwhelming, you cannot contain it. Our Jesus in his tears, in his triumphant entry, enters into Jerusalem and weeps over it, saying, if you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace. What are the things that make for peace? That's a good question to ask when we think about our purpose and function in life. Because these things that make for peace have nothing to do with gender roles. They have everything to do with our character and how we treat ourselves and other people. You see, many people who teach biblical masculinity believe that all the suffering we face in this world is due to divorce, 
and the breakup of the nuclear family. They often say that there are school shootings because a father abdicated his responsibility. They spread the lie that there is social unrest, not because of systemic injustice, but because a man isn't at home providing and protecting his family. Do you see how this kind of thinking protects the people in charge? Many people believe the absolute lie that children grow up in handicapped families without a man in the home. This kind of thinking is dehumanizing for women and non-binary people. It basically implies the necessity and self-sufficiency of men and the disposable nature of women. Women are not good enough on their own to raise children. Even though it's tempting to assume that this is an issue that those Christians face, we need to do the humble work of examining our own lives. As we raise children, do we praise boys when they are tough, strong, and have no needs? Do we silence and shame boys and young men when they are vulnerable and need connection and care? Do we discourage our children and youth from exploring who they are by laughing at them when their gender expression changes? Do our children have rights? Do our children and youth have any kind of human rights? In her book, All About Love, Bell Hooks unpacks how children don't really have human rights. They have to go where they're told to go and do what they are told to do. In what ways are you respecting and encouraging your child's autonomy? Do you respect your child's no? Or your teenage girl's no? Or do you always interpret their concerns, their complaints, and their criticisms as like a first step to all right rebellion? In our romantic relationships, are they rooted in mutual giving? Bell Hooks defines love as rooted in justice, rooted in mutual effortful engagement. Is your romantic relationship rooted in mutual effortful engagement, regardless of what role you wanna play? How do we embody patriarchy in our churches? Don't assume that just because a church is progressive that they're not living in this toxic patriarchal system too. Whenever a staff member disagrees with a senior pastor, whether man, woman, or non-binary senior pastor, there is a lot of work that goes into reprimanding and silencing that staff person. Whenever a member of a church is brave enough to call out the poor choices of leadership, that member is often over time, not asked to volunteer or be on committees. I've seen this kind of patriarchal thing happen in LGBT affirming churches. This is not a conservative church problem. Let's get a little personal real quick. In what ways are you silencing your own needs and vulnerabilities? in order to gain acceptance and success? In what ways are you silencing or shaming or punishing people around you for having needs? How do we normalize independence, interdependence and freedom within our relationships, within our families? Can we tolerate freedom of expression? Can we tolerate freedom of gender expression? When you're tempted to go the easy route and to conform yourself, to reject who you are, to fit someone else's standards, 
Remember that Jesus didn't hide his needs, he expressed them. Jesus didn't hide his pain. He cried like a woman bereft. He wasn't quiet when he saw something toxic or troublesome. In the next passage, Jesus flips the tables of the money changers. That's not submissive at all. That's not someone who follows a system. If the New Testament letter to the Hebrews is right, that Jesus is the exact representation of God, if Jesus is the visible reflection of an invisible creator, then gender conformity has nothing to do with the Christian life. And biblical masculinity is the antithesis of what Jesus himself is all about. Instead of breaking our backs, fulfilling Paul and John Piper's expectations of us, let us just simply love one another as best we can. Jesus said, I give you a new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus loved us by pursuing our healing and our wholeness. He loved us by spending his whole ministry career speaking out against religious hypocrisy. Instead of conquering his enemies, he told us to love them and to pray for them. Instead of exacting revenge, Jesus told us to turn the other cheek. Instead of being judgmental and critical of one another, Jesus said, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. Instead of forcing his radical ideas of love and justice upon us, Jesus got on a donkey and made his way towards the cross. As you make your way towards Easter, may God help you see Jesus and all of the love that God has for you. And in case no one has ever told you, you are free to be whoever you are. God loves you just as you are and just as you will become. Living honestly and truthfully can set you free, and it can also inspire other people to be free too. May your vision of Jesus set you free to genuinely love yourself and other people in your life. Thank you. Each episode of The Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. share any comments on this topic now is the time to kind of share anything hey ashley can you hear me hey yes i can aaron yeah hi there uh what's that it's it's actually not aaron this is the lord oh sorry (laughs) sorry i couldn't resist i feel so powerful um i i just wanted to um maybe hear you expound a little more on the intersection of patriarchy and evangelicalism and kind of the anti-gay, um, obviously, perspective that's prevalent there, too. Do you see an intersection between, you know, patriarchal theology and anti-gay theology, I guess, is another way to look at it. Um, how does one feed into the other in your perspective, if at all? 
have thoughts on this, but I would love to hear if anybody else has any thoughts on this too. I think um, when I think about anti-gay theology, for me, it's more about gender. It's not so much about sexuality as much as it is, it is about, oh, oh, you're a woman, you're supposed to do this. You're supposed to be only attracted to men, you know? And uh, you're, it's just very much tied to gender and sexuality for me. Women, you're supposed to be a procreator and you're supposed to live to support men. Any deviation from that would be LGBT box or whatever. It's, it's you, you know, even back in the 40s and 50s, what was considered queer is any deviation from that, even if it was um, different sexual activities was considered queer, not to go too far on that, but you know, um, even if you were married, that was considered queer. So that's how I see it. But does anybody else have any thoughts about that? How does anti-gay theology um, influence? Okay, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, like, based on my upbringing, like, I I don't know if anyone else experienced this. Like, definitely in the early '90s, like in my church in my community, there was like this resurgence of like. Like, I remember my dad going to like promise keepers and like these conventions and my dad would come back and he was like reconnected to God and stuff and, and all that. And I feel like it's all about control, control with women, all of this stuff, like people being LGBT, like, oh, I can't control you because you're not like you're not going to fit in this box under the headship of a man. Exactly. And it's all of that. It's all, you know, any, anything going on with women's autonomy for their bodies. I remember being in high school and not realizing that a lot of churches don't believe women can be pastors. Cause that was just never something that was surfaced with me and, and being like, why not? Like, but it's control. It's all, it's all about that. And anything that subverts like the heterosexual normative, like traditional values, means they can't control us so awesome thank you anyone else hi it's randy can you hear me yes we can hear you um over the years i've met men who identified as straight but yet if they had feelings that were emotional or sexual for another man it kind of freaked them out and i think it's a society that we live in like i identify as straight Therefore, I can only be this way. And if I have these feelings, there's something wrong with me. And what you said about um, being free to be yourself and not be shamed, you know, because sometimes sexuality can be fluid. I mean, I had a girlfriend in high school and I've been with women and now I identify with as gay, but um, it's just a shame that so much pain. I know young men now that um, identifies as straight and I think he has feelings that bother him and it lash, it can come out as violence and anger. And um, it's just sad that a person has to go through their whole life squashing these feelings and um, not being their authentic self in that moment. You know, they can go their whole life as straight and then feel attracted to a man and then squash it and feel anger and guilt and shame and sometimes that lashes out at gay bashing and um, what a, a tragedy that effect has on our society that people have to lash out in hate against other people. 
You know, does that make sense? Is that my making it? Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Randy, yeah. for sharing that. That's totally true. I spent like 20 years squashing it out. I know what that feels like. One quick thing. Um, I sometimes think that labels, like our tendency to need labels of other people is kind of patriarchal. I need to know what box to put you in. I remember recently I went to a therapist's office who was very, his, most of his experiences with, with, was with evangelical clergy. And I was assigned to go to him and he could not put me, like it was really hard for him to understand and conceptualize anything about me because not only was I gay, because he's dealt with, with lesbians before, but I'm masculine. And so I think that like messed with him in a lot of levels and that's okay. It's okay if it messes with you. We don't need to like force our need for labels onto people, you know? But thank you for sharing that, Randy. Um, I think the, the thing that Aaron was talking about, about the intersection between the theology of patriarchy and anti-gay theology, I'd never thought of this, but I mean, when you have a, a clear, like everybody has clear roles, anything outside of that is threatening. So if, if you're two women in a relationship, there's no one to lead. If you're two men in a relationship, who's leading? Who's, there's no one to submit. Like it messes with the entire structure of their world. And so they have to oppose it because they, they can't, kind of like you're talking about with your therapist, they can't take it in. Like, it's just like, like, it's like suddenly saying the sky is green and everybody's like, no, we all know the sky is blue. Like it's so inherent to them. Like they believe so fundamentally in it. They can't even see something else. When I had my hair long and like um, was very feminine, men treated me differently. And then now that I'm masculine and butch, men treat me like men, like equals. So I think sometimes when we are non-conforming to the patriarchal circle, we threaten the power that men have um, that they don't realize that they are benefiting from. So yeah, I think that's really interesting. Anybody else? Hi everyone. So this is uh, perhaps a silly metaphor, but recently I saw this film called The Mitchells versus the Machines. If anyone's seen it, it's wonderful. <laughs> Um, and in the film, which actually features a queer character that we learn at the end of the film is she's queer, which is a wonderful thing to have in an animated film. Um, there's this idea where they have this pet dog and the robots, when they look at the pet dog, they can't tell if it's a dog or a loaf of bread. And because they can't figure out what the dog is, they explode. So in the film, all the robots explode because they're looking at this dog and they can't categorize it. Um, and there's something so beautiful about that messaging in the film that there's this power structure in place that reads everything. And when it doesn't fit a box, it literally can't comprehend it and can't function. Um, and I just thought that that was such a beautiful metaphor for some of what we're perhaps touching on here. In and out. <laughs> and just thinking about like, how do we and how do people 
need things to just scan correctly. Um, otherwise, it feels like our brains go kaput. So how can we put ourselves and enmesh ourselves with things that maybe don't fit the scan and then question the scanner to begin with? So anyway, also a recommendation for the film. It's lovely. Awesome. Speaking of not fitting into boxes, I don't think complementarianism is inherently like unwise. I think in some ways, healthy couples do complement each other. I don't, um, the, the unhealthy part is where you have no other choice but to stay at home, or you have no other choice but to be the breadwinner. You, can, you cannot do, you have to be the whatever. Healthy couples, I think, do complement each other. Healthy friendships complement each other well. Like my wife and I always say, where you are weak, I am strong. And where I am weak, you are strong. You know, like um, sometimes couples, one couple, they can lead in finances and the other person uh, not, but the other person kind of leads when it comes to family dynamics or neighbor stuff or health. You know, I don't know. I don't think that's inherently wrong. Like I think there's a lot of virtue in that, but um, we need to be able to be free to express that and to um, live that out whatever way that makes sense for that person, even if it doesn't make sense for us. Any other thoughts? That's cool. All right. Well, thank you everyone for coming. I'm so grateful you all were here. Oh, Aaron, you, you want to say something? No, I just was going to say thank you. Um, thanks for doing that today. I'm glad I could also attend via Zoom <laughs> with my kids. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, everyone. Have a good Palm Sunday and go in peace. Mm -hmm.